Risk is sort of like uh, sort of like energy, or you can't create or destroy energy. You can only change it. In the same same way, you can't can't get rid of risk. You can only push it in time. Since we've been pushing this for such a long time, it's going to be really, really, really bad when it's uh, when it sort of finally explodes here. Martin Sandqvist is one of the three founders of the immensely successful hedge fund Lynx. In the late 1990s, Martin teamed up with two of his colleagues at the bank to form the trend-following Algorithmic Managed Futures Fund Lynx. Over the next two decades, Lynx racked up over 500% returns and made each of the three founding partners into a billionaire. We cover a lot of ground in this interview including Martin's view on cryptocurrencies, gold and volatility. Listen closely and you'll find out how to get the bonus document with 27 of the most important lessons from our talk with Martin Sandquist. Here is the interview. Hi Martin, how are you? Good, how are you? Last time we talked about cryptocurrencies and you're quite skeptical. Could you elaborate a little bit on why? I'm skeptical uh, against cryptocurrencies, but uh, I've sort of uh, nuanced my my view on on blockchain technology. And now I actually think that blockchain is going to be quite uh, disruptive in many ways. But I don't think, I still don't think that uh, cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin are going to be a viable um, application. I mean, I, I see blockchain as sort of an internet 2.0. I mean, we had internet so that was a decentralized way of, of, of sharing information. And I think blockchain is a decentralized way of keeping track of ownership. So, so I mean, that's a really good thing. But um, then we have applications on these, though, like like uh, Bitcoin and we have Facebook on, on the internet. But I mean, Bitcoin is supposed to be a currency. And, and the thing that doesn't make Bitcoin work as a currency is that you don't have a scarcity the way that they say you do. I mean, they say you only have 21 million Bitcoins, but you can fork them infinite amount of times and you can create as many altcoins as you want. So you don't really have scarcity and you also don't have any intrinsic value in a Bitcoin. You have intrinsic value. There's value in the network, much the same way as there's value in uh, in Facebook, but you don't have that by owning a Facebook account, like the same way you don't have value by owning a Bitcoin. Uh, you can't do anything with your Bitcoin. Uh, so you don't have intrinsic value and you don't have scarcity. So it makes it very difficult to, to use as a currency. And it's not being used as a currency now. It's just used as a speculative asset uh, because it's too slow and it's too expensive to transact in now. So it's lost all its purpose. And um, yeah. I think what you're saying about the fork is pretty interesting because if you look on Wikipedia if and if you look on Forkster, they don't have a lot of good information. All they say is it's, it's just a picture of a fork there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like they're not. Uh, it's it's not going to give you an impression that that's something that can happen. If you look at the page, it's like it's happened, but it's no explanation of what it means or yeah, that it no, could exactly, happen yeah. again uh, or why. Yeah, and I've heard the explanation. Well, well, you know, it's just a couple of forks. It's not going to happen again. But I mean. Who knows? I mean, they've forked it two or three times, like just last year. And some people argue, well, I mean, they create fiat currency much faster than that. But I mean... Even if they do keep forking, even if they fork a hundred times, does that really matter? Since one of the forks, one of the iterations of the Bitcoin could be the winner. The, what they're doing is going through an, a Darwinistic process to find the best sort of, of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, that really could be the case, but then you don't know, how, how, how would you know which is the winning fork? Oh, no, yeah, so you I mean, don't. So you can't, you can't buy it now no. as a store of value. 
Exactly. I think blockchain is going to persist and be a really interesting technology, but I don't think it's going to work by using tokens and, and miners that we have today. I mean, we have this new, I don't know if you've read about Hashgraph, it's a new technology where you don't even need miners, you don't need tokens, you still have this, this blockchain um, network. So, and I mean, if you, if you can relate it to the internet, I mean, I think it's going to be the way we pay for internet. Today, today we pay for internet through ISPs, internet service providers. You pay a small fee and you get access to the internet. It's going to be the same way with blockchain. If you, if you want to use a, a, an application uh, for blockchain, you're going to pay a small fee. And maybe you'll have miners that compete for that fee in a pool or some way. But um, there's no, not going to be a need for, uh, for a very expensive token uh, the way it is today. Your best guess of this is that even if you could pick the ultimate winner, that winner would still not have a significant value per uh, No, per I think it's, it's, it might have a small value, much in the same way as, um, I mean, you pay a small fee for accessing the internet, but it can't be a huge value, I, I don't think, because uh, of these things that we talked about. So, Do you have any interest in investing in this like um, like a so-called China trade where like the saying goes that if you have a product and if one percent of the Chinese buy it then it will be very valuable uh, anyway uh, are you interested at all in putting any amounts uh, at stake here in cryptos I, I would really like to invest in in, in sort of firms that uh, get involved with the blockchain technology there's one firm in the US called symbiont which uh, which tries to identify uh, technologies that are gonna sort of uh, try to take out the middleman because that's where I think the big big uh, win winning sort of uh, aspect of blockchain technology is where you can eliminate middlemen like like banks and credit card companies I mean lawyers and exchanges all these things that cost a lot of money that can be used that can be done more effectively through through a blockchain technology that's that's going to be very interesting so so I mean firms that can involve in that um, that's that's I mean that could be there obviously going to be some huge winners here but it's hard to say uh, who who they are going to be What's your view on um, initial coin offerings as a shortcut for uh, for venture capital? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not going to say that it's going to completely disappear, but there might be still some some niche where you where you invest uh, money and you get uh, a token that you can use in that application. But I mean, when I invest uh, in a, in a company, I want to get part of their return streams and that you don't get that by an ICO. You just get a token that you can use in their application. Uh, so I mean. But uh, there might still be some, yeah, you could might still be able to do ICOs. But and there also you have the, all these uh, hacks that have. I read that ten percent of all the ICOs uh, have, have all the ICO money that has been raised has been hacked and stolen. So no. <laughs> that's not a. <laughs> I also think that the SEC is preparing a case against. I think the largest ICO since it's uh, you're not supposed to raise money this way if they are considered equities. How did you first get into finance? What was it that made you think that this is something for me? I mean, I, I was always interested uh, at, at a young age. Uh, I had uh, charts uh, plastered all over my my wall, my boy boy uh, boy room. Uh, it's pretty unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but I can't I can't uh, I can't uh, explain what, where it came from. But none of my parents have this interest, and my brothers are all in, in uh, film and movies or in the music. So I can't really explain why. It's some, something has to do with the uh, the part of being uh, financially independent and, and doing stuff on my own. I always loved uh, to do stuff on my own and have sort of total responsibility. I always hated the sort of group work in, in school where we yeah. sort of <laughs> had to share responsibility. And uh, I, I, play, I played a goalie when I played soccer because I didn't want to have teammates. So, so um, yeah, that's part of it. 
Did you have a lemonade stand? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't that. I wasn't that entrepreneurial type. I, I'm not uh, really an entrepreneurial type, but uh, I was always like the independence of trading and also the fact that you're always judged by uh, just the market. You're not judged by third party, which, which is the case in most other occupations. You have to have somebody else evaluate what you're doing and have an opinion on it. And there's a third party evaluation. That's not the case in the markets where you're only competing against uh, sort of this invisible market and yourself. So and you're always getting judged day by day. And there's always a also a direct correlation between your skill and uh, the outcome. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of luck also and, and, and noise in, in the interim, but um, that's a really interesting part that, I mean, you can be a, a skateboarder or a great uh, musician, but uh, it doesn't uh, mean that you're going to make a lot of money or be very successful because you have this sort of third party that's going to evaluate you. I mean, I see this all the time with on the TV shows and people sitting on the subways who are amazing musicians, but they might never make it because of well, luck and other factors. But uh, So that's what I really liked about the markets, that there's a more direct uh, connection between your skill and your outcome. You've said before that you like looking for the truth and also making predictions, which, well, you need to know what the truth is in, in order to make predictions that, uh, that work, that are practical. Did you understand this basis for, for trading early on, or is it something you've come to think of later on? No, I think I, I, was, I sort of... S- thought about uh, that uh, afterwards and uh, um, this uh, sort of truth-seeking aspect um, really became apparent to me later on when I was uh, getting in, interested in science and, and different kind of theories and uh, uh, all that stuff and uh, I saw the relationship w- with uh, with um, trading also but um, yeah it, it came a bit later on as you mature you understand more of yourself and who you are and but it seems to have entered other aspects of your life so you're not well you you're you're looking for the truth in a more general sense as well uh, I'm thinking of books like The Fabric of Reality that you recommended, for example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, and it's, but most of it is just my also my love for theories and and uh, uh, I mean, The Fabric of Reality deals with uh, with uh, th- with the theory of quantum mechanics and then I mean, we have two great scientific theories: the quantum me- mechanics and and the relativity. And The Fabric of Reality deals with the uh, many worlds interpretation of of the quantum mechanics, where the Everett theory, where you have multiple universes uh, all the time, sort of. Um, uh, coming into existence to explain the the uh, sort of the strange behavior of quantum mechanics. Uh, so there's, it's a very interesting theory, but um, it uh, <laughs> it's very strange also. So <laughs> it's pretty far off from predicting uh, the movement of a share price. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, exactly. But uh, there's also yeah, you're also trying to find truth in in, in patterns and 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 uh, and I mean, prediction is a, a way to validate a theory. That's how you validate a theory. You make predictions, and if it's a good theory, it makes pretty good predictions. Maybe not hundred percent, but uh, fairly good predictions. And, and so they they sort of they belong together, theories and prediction in that way. So I would like to backtrack a little bit. So we have you there, like 15 years old, maybe a boy with charts on its walls. Uh, how do you first get started with the market? Do you just like read the paper? And... Yeah, yeah, it started like that. I read the papers. I saw the, all these numbers in the back of the paper, and I wondered what's that. So that was interesting. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then when I realized that uh, you could make money by by predicting where these uh, where these numbers are going, that made it even more interesting. So I, I started the usual way. I started reading about you know, fundamentals, company reports, and my, my my dad opened an account, and we bought some shares of some stock, and uh, so that's that's how it grew really. And I mean, I was I was really crazy at that time. I mean, people had posters of, you know, Def Leppard on their wall, but I just had charts on the wall and people thought I was totally mad. <laughs> what are these charts? But then, I mean, then you evolve. I mean, I 
I realized that fundamental analysis wasn't really for me. So then I started to to, to uh, read about technical analysis, and that's where it really clicked for me because I'm I'm a much more uh, visual person, and and uh, just uh, yeah, just um, technical analysis really really struck a chord with me, and uh, that's uh, that's when I really knew that this was something I wanted to do. Then I I didn't know about at that time that you could actually make a living from it. That sounds strange today, but uh, um, back then I only knew of you know three occupations in, in finance. It was you know, either we were broker. Or you were an analyst, uh, or you were a fund manager picking stocks uh, for a, for a mutual fund. And I mean, I didn't want to do any of those. I just wanted to trade. So I thought I was going to trade on the side and have a real job uh, as my main income. So, but then then when I got to like twenty five, I realized you, there was this uh, prop trading groups that uh, you could work for, where you could trade for the bank, or you could start a hedge fund and all this. So that's when I really sort of uh, oh, thought that I maybe I should do this for a living instead of. How do you view fundamental analysis these days? Do, do you think it works? Yeah, I think I think it's the wrong question to, to think about whether fundamental analysis works or technical analysis works. I mean, there, there are aspects that uh, work and aspects that don't work. I, I use maybe fundamental analysis like 10% of the time. Uh, that's 10% of my input into a trade. And uh, uh, the other 90 is sort of a pattern recognition and technical. But um, I mean, it's but that's more, 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 more because I'm not that good at fundamental analysis. <laughs> if I was better, I would use it more. But the, uh, I, I, I can't say that it's something works or doesn't work. It's more, it works if you're good at it. And I mean, there's 90% of technical analysis that doesn't work. So you can't say that that works either. But um, it works if you if you become good at it and specialized at it. Uh, This is really interesting to become specialized at it. So you said you were more visually oriented. And this is something that you understood. Did you understand this at an early age? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, like, like I said, I saw this, when I was 15, I started reading, you know, fundamental analysis and company reports, and I just couldn't really get my head around it. I, I couldn't. Under, I, it wasn't something that clicked in me. So yeah. uh, it, it took some while. But then I, I found the technical analysis when I was 16. My we went to to um, high school, and a friend of mine uh, pulled up in a Porsche. And it was, I was like, so yeah, well, how, how did you buy that Porsche? Yeah, I use technical analysis. Okay, I might, I might want to look into that. <laughs> That's crazy. So he really, really got me, got me into that, and uh, uh, I started reading about it, and I just got became fascinated with the patterns and everything. So, could you walk us through your process when you do research? All sorts of approaches. Uh, I mean, I, I used uh, Elliott wave analysis for a long time. Uh, I looked. I mean, I've looked at everything under the sun. But then after a while, I just started to recognize that some things. Uh, didn't contribute to to my uh, predictions so they didn't make any I mean even though I had uh, read I had spent like a few years on elite wave analysis I was the expert I mean I knew everything I I'd read about it day and night but after a while I was just like this doesn't add anything to my bottom line it doesn't add anything to my predictions even though it's a great theory I think it's valid in some sense but it doesn't help me in my predictions and then I have to then I have to discard it and I mean that's a really hard thing to do uh, and I still do that a lot uh, I have some favorite patterns that I, that I just threw out the other year that I've been using for a long time but after a while I've, I just realized that they don't work anymore uh, something has changed and so I have to get rid of them and just focus on on what adds to the bottom line and that's yeah I think There might be like a sense of of being lazy if you use too few variables, and I think that's uh, like the a wrong that uh, many many fundamental researchers do. They want to add 
anything that might have even the slightest theoretical inputs into a model. And then they just keep collecting data series and never discard any series, especially if they on paper seem to be the most important, like sales or cash flow or yeah, price yeah, earnings. Yeah, no, definitely. It's 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 a hard thing to sort of, especially if you've been doing something for a long time and you're very, very good at it. And it's, it's hard to, to sort of uh, to to kill your baby. Yeah. What does that mean, by the way? Elliott wave analysis. Yeah. Uh, it's a wave theory uh, of the markets, uh, which uh, says that uh, the markets proceeds in, in a series of five waves up and three waves down. Uh, and this is, it's a fractal pattern where you have uh, waves within waves within waves. And you can sort of, uh, this, this is a framework where you can make predictions on, on how the market's going to go uh, according to this uh, theory. And you can kind of always fit an Elliott wave to a chart. Yeah. That's that's yeah, exactly that, that was my. It looks very good in, in after 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 I mean after the case you can see I mean this looks like a perfect wave but it was very hard to to use it in real time and, and make predictions. In theory, it also kind of holds water because it, it's mapped to human psychology. Yeah, and therefore it's it's very easy to become a fan of Elliott wave analysis. It's a fascinating theory. That's why I fell in love with it. But um, yeah, you could probably fit the the five stages of grief to the down waves and yeah. then for some other. <laughs> <laughs> kind of uh, positive on the, yeah. the upside. <laughs> but, but you've said before that it's very important to gain an edge. And uh, so you realized you were visually oriented and you also realized you like technical analysis. What did you do to expand upon that? Did you maybe come up with some systems to use this talent of yours or practice it in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to practice it and uh, also try, try to come up with the things on my own. I've always been sort of a synthesizer in that way that I, I read a lot about what other people are doing. Uh, I know you had a question about role models here. My, my biggest role model in, in trading is Linda Rashke. She's a trader in, uh, in the Market Wizards. And I've modeled a lot of my approach based on her, her approach. Pattern recognition, where you sort of, um, yeah, you try to find patterns and, and uh, always always revise your library of patterns to only keep those that are contributing to your results. So. Is this someone that you know about, Mikael? No, and I've actually read at least one Market Wizards, but um, as we discussed last time we met Martin, I didn't like Market Wizards, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing more and more that I should reread at least one of them. She's in, I think she's in the new Market Wizards, the second book. Uh, yeah, she's. I mean, she's, she's not the... She's not the biggest trade in the world, I mean, but she's really fascinating. And the case that she's a woman is also, there's very few women traders and, and uh, she's uh, she's one of the best. I also like to read a lot and uh, synthesize. Do you have some process for doing it? Because for me, at this point, I feel like I'm becoming so much better at it all the time. And it's a really nice feeling. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but it's becoming intuitive. But, yeah. but I did, I have practiced it a lot. I've used all sorts of crazy learning methods and memorization stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't have a method for it. It's just, uh, just yeah, uh, I just try to be an infinite learner or sort of a learning machine and st- sort of try to learn all the time. And uh, the fun thing about that is the compound interest effect that you have on learning. I mean, Buffett said that the compound interest is the greatest, uh, one of the greatest wonders of the world. And I think that's true. But it's also true in, in terms of, of, of knowledge and, and learning that, and I mean, you're still, very young, Ludwig. So I mean, you're, you're going to be way smarter than us when you come to come to our age if you keep this learning pace up. So, do you read with 
a pen or a highlighter in hand or do you just read? I read books. Yeah, but, do you, <laughs> but when you read, do you do anything to remember? I have my phone, so I write down my phone if there's something interesting that I will remember or, or do more research on. Uh, so I put that down into uh, the phone and I do, usually I read it at night before I go to bed. And I also read a lot in the bathtub, like, like Alan Greenspan. So all my books are wrinkled and sort of destroyed because of all the reading in the tub. But I love, I love, love lying in the bathtub and reading this. And is it mostly to collect information and knowledge? Like, is, is this a directed activity for you or is it more for entertainment but you you like things that also contain information yeah i think it's a bit of both i mean uh, i love I just love learning things i love uh, it's 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 fun to dive into a subject that you can have an opinion on you know uh, talking at uh, cocktail parties and, and uh, stuff like that. But I have to admit, I, ha- I have a bit of a bias. I always like, I think this is a sort of work hazard. When you're in trading, you're always looking for the variant perception in the market. You're always looking for the other opinion that's yeah. sort of contrary to everybody else. That's where you can make a lot of money when you have an opinion that's uh, not in the price in the market. But uh, this sort of spills into my to my to my other stuff. So I always uh, f- I always love uh, issues or sort of topics that uh, where I can have a opposite opinion to the uh, conventional wisdom but my my wife really gets uh, annoyed at me she's always like why do you always have to have a contrary opinion to everything so annoying (laughs) that's the fun part i mean it's not fun to agree with everybody it's it's more fun to sort of have an opposite opinion how did you meet her did you ask her at a cocktail party what her favorite uh, interpretation of quantum physics is yeah exactly that was my pickup line it didn't work too well but (laughs) but but this is something that um, everyone who's into finance and trading they're like okay what the magic formula for becoming a contrarian right but yeah. you have to how, yeah there is no formula correct? no exactly and, and i mean it's not uh, you can't be a contrarian uh, and you're going to make money by default i mean it's not that easy that you, you just can go against the conventional wisdom sometimes it's it's the best to go with the trend and, and the momentum and the conventional wisdom but in the end you have to have an opinion that's not priced in the markets because um, otherwise it's impossible to make money what's your process of identifying whether you are going with the trend or against the trend well, I have different uh, momentum indicators uh, and stuff like that. Uh, um, uh, I'm always looking for sort of a shift in the regime, so a shift between volatility, low volatility and high volatility, because that usually begets uh, trends. So when you have a period of high volatility and you start to see the volatility come, volatility come down, you usually go into sort of a more range-bound uh, non-trending market. And the opposite also, when you've had a long period of, of non-trending, low volatility markets, it's usually time for, for, for some kind of direct directional movement. Uh, so for those who are not uh, professional finance people, what are some popular or normal momentum indicators? I use uh, pivot uh, points a lot. I use uh, moving averages and, and you know breakout levels and stuff like that. But uh, one of my favorite indicators is the ADX, the average directional movement indicator, which indicates just the just the level of trend in the markets. And you can see very very clear cyclical patterns there, where where you have a low ADX for a long time. It usually is indicating that uh, we're going to have some type of movement, and then I. I try to go with with the momentum and the opposite when you've had a high ADX and uh, it's starting to come down. It's usually a sign that you were going to go into some some more sort of uh, zigzag uh, type of market. So talking of volatility, we are recording this just a couple of weeks after Volmageddon. You and I actually had a lunch booked the day after this volatility spike and, and you actually canceled that lunch. Could you talk about what happened in the markets and maybe how that affected you. Well, it didn't affect me that much. I mean, I since I trade only my own money now, I can uh, afford to just step aside and, and uh, be fairly passive, which I did. Uh, but it was very 
concentrated in the in the equity markets, the volatility. You, we didn't have much uh, FX volatility or fixed income volatility. So it's, uh, I mean, I trade um, multiple range of markets and uh, equities are just one of them. So it didn't affect me that much. Uh, but it's very interesting um, that we see this pattern now. It's the same pattern that we had in 1987, where we had a lot of equity volatility, but not much volatility in other assets. What happened then? Uh, well, you know, uh, the crash of 1987. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you were too young then, Ludwig. You were the, the, biggest, <laughs> uh, the biggest percentage drop in, in the US stock indices ever yeah. in, in a single day. Dow Jones fell by 23% or so. 22% something, yeah. So, I mean, we can, could be facing something uh, similar to that now. And there's a lot of other similarities also. This volatility spike, the VIX increased by almost 100% in, in just a single day. For me, the first thing I, I came to think of was um, the collapse of the Bear Stearns subprime funds in uh, 2007, about a year before the financial crisis started. Do you see this as something similar? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's a very good uh, analogy. It's uh, That was in February 2007, much the same way this is February 2018. So yeah, it could be the start of, of something bigger. And I think it is. I, I don't think it's going to play out like 2008. I think it's going to more play out like the 2000.com bust or 1987, something like that. So something more yes, intense. Quicker, exactly, exactly. And, but I think, I mean, this time central banks are going to jump in sooner and, and prevent uh, a total sort of market Armageddon. But that's going to in turn ensue a currency crisis like we talked about before. That I think is, is that's my vision of how these, this thing is going to end. It's going to end in a currency crisis and a dollar crisis when, when central banks go back to easing and, and printing money again. I mean, now, now they're on a tight path but uh, this soon they're gonna have to give that up if the market uh, goes down too much so is this related to your ideas about fourth turning generational cycles yeah exactly i mean it fits in pretty good with the fourth turning uh, predictions that uh, we were in a crisis period now and the trigger was 2008 and we're waiting for the climax here and then like i said i think the climax is going to be some type of collapse in the fiat currency system exactly how it plays out um, i don't know but uh, i think uh, i mean my bet is on gold that you should have a lot of gold do you think that what we are seeing in terms of quantitative easing the last 10 years maybe in terms of a possible end to the petrodollar system and similar movements in the macro world do you think those are postponing or pushing forward the fourth turning or don't matter at all i don't think it matters that much um, i think this would uh, i mean uh, central banks are definitely at the heart or the root of the problem here uh, which i think is very important for people to know i mean it's because I'm not afraid of sort of Trump or what he's going to do, but I'm more afraid of what's going to come after Trump and, and the socialist sort of uh, socialist wins that are going to follow because now everybody's going to blame this on capitalism, even though this is not capitalism's fault. I mean, this is the fault of central planning and, 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 and central banks and, and government and, and on the meddling that we haven't had capitalism for a long time. Uh, the Fed has been sort of mani manipulating prices and markets for a long time and they've tried to push risk out. And risk is sort of like, uh, sort of like energy or you can't create or destroy you can only change it in the same, same way you can't can't get rid of risk you can only push it in time and that's what they've done they pushed the risk out in time and but sooner or later it's going to come back uh, sort of like uh, trying to contain a volcano you, you can just put put a lid on it for for a while but it's um, sooner or later it's going to explode and then um, since we've been pushing this for such a long time it's going to be really 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 bad when it's uh, when it sort of finally explodes here since you mentioned gold it's hard to carry people want to steal it and they actually can steal it physically from you if you have it on you it's hard to hide or conceal on your body it's uh, it takes up space it actually can be mined from the earth or maybe an asteroid strike and um, it's hard to use for small payments 
also it can only be transferred in person. So how come gold is better than bitcoins? Well, because now now we have the technology to to use gold. Uh, There's this firm called Gold Money where you can deposit your gold and you can get a credit card and you can pay pay for everything and and just uh, deduct small port portion of your gold. So now it's actually much easier today with with the digital te- technology to use gold as money in, in real life transactions. And I mean, you mentioned that gold is heavy, it's hard to carry, but I mean, that's just the, the thing. It's it's the most portable money that there is. I mean, everything else would be heavier. Everything else would be more cumbersome. That's why gold has been money, because it, it has these uh, properties like it's uh, hard to destroy, it's, it's um, malleable, it's uh, divisible and uh, has intrinsic value and everything. So, Is there anything that competes with gold, like platinum or silver, or yeah, diamonds? I mean, they, they, they all have aspects uh, of gold, but um, there's a reason why gold sort of uh, has become money, because uh, nothing is exactly like gold. Silver, as you know, Uh, it, it oxidizes. It oxidizes, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a reason why 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 gold has taken the top place there. But I mean, all the other metals are are comparable. There's value there too, and you can use them in industrial um, uh, applications. And and gold would be used a lot more in the in the industry if it was cheaper. Now it's uh, fairly expensive because of the monetary aspect. So you said gold money is that uh, is that uh, Peter Schiff? Exactly, he's invested in that. Um, he merged his gold company with the gold money, I believe. So, is your interest and um, investment in gold is that like a a one percent insurance trade, or is it something bigger? It's bigger. I mean, it's like ten percent, fifteen percent, depending how you calculate. Uh, but uh, I I really think that uh, the easiest way to play this uh, sort of disaster scenario is just by going long gold. I mean. Because you can't short the stock market because you don't know how much money the central bank is going to put in or how how I mean, how far they're going to go to save it. So the the, the real play is just um, by being short fiat currencies and long uh, hard assets. I think. Uh, Do you think holding gold could just as easily double as it could halve in price? Is this just a way of parking money, making sure it doesn't disappear completely? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's it. It's a it's a way of store storing your value. And then, I mean, if you look at history. Gold has been an excellent store of value. Like like in the Roman times, you can buy buy a toga for an ounce of gold. Today, you can buy an expensive suit for an ounce of gold. So it's definitely kept this sort of purchasing power, which you can't say about any other fiat, uh, any other currency. All right, going forward, no matter what it will mean in terms of dollars, do you think in in ten years time, do you think you can buy more or less S and P five hundred units or more? or less um, square meters of living space for for gold than you can can now, more or less? Uh, The living space is hard because uh, that's a hard asset also. And I I believe in owning sort of uh, land and property. I think that's good. But I think the relationship to the S&P or Dow is going to... In all other crises, uh, whether you go back to 29 or or the 70s, uh, we've always gone down to a Dow gold ratio of one, which is, I think, where we're headed now also. I mean, the, the the Dow divided by the by gold is going to be one or below that. So now we're at about 15 or something. We was at the peak of 40 uh, at the 2000 peak there. So we've come down a long way, but uh, it's still a long way to go, I think. Oh yeah, speaking of gold as a currency and retaining value, I read this really enticing sales proposition for cryptocurrency recently. And what they were saying was that you would have this, uh, you would have a hard drive where you would store your cryptocurrency, and then it would have a secret password, and then you would buy a cool ring and engrave inside the ring a special phrase that you would memorize, like a secret agent. And then you would like go around and be location independent and take off your ring and open up your secret vault. And like when you read that sales proposition. 
fashion, it really conjured up images in your head, like, I'm gonna be like James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sounds, sounds, sounds very cool. <laughs> but the whole point is, uh, this is gonna replace gold, and this is going to be the new thing where it's like, everyone is just gonna go around and be location-dependent and have their secret storages of cryptocurrency. Yeah, and I mean, they play a lot on that in the crypto world. I mean, they they, they have the term mining for the, the proof of work in, in the blockchain and uh, sort of to, to, to say that it's um, similar to mining gold. I mean, uh, it could work if it wasn't the case that uh, you, could, uh, you could create as many uh, of these cryptos as, as, as you want. I mean, and which people are gonna do if the price keeps uh, staying this high. I mean, the supply is gonna over- overwhelm the demand sooner or later and the price has to come down because if it doesn't cost anything to create uh, new currencies, then, uh, I mean, people are going to do it. So. But one thing that's really interesting is uh, just the psychological position of it, the psychological proposition of uh, what's going on. So, like, uh, even if uh, everything you're saying is right, you have a lot of people who have now started to become so interested in promoting this that they'll tell their friends and, you know, because they're invested in it themselves and they have everything to gain from the price going up. So... They're, they've turned a lot of people into true believers who are very good salespeople. And it's going to spread like that. And even if uh, there's no real reason, no real inherent value, that can uh, make the price go up in a, in a long period of time. Definitely. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that this is over now. I think, uh, I mean, there's a good chance that uh, it's going to, Bitcoin's going to go to 100,000. I, I don't know. But I mean, uh, I think if we get a collapse below three or 4,000, that's going to be 80% correction, I think. Many markets, when you have that type of correction, it doesn't go back up. Now in Bitcoin, we've seen 70% correction a couple of times and it's gone back up to make new highs. And now the recent correction was around 67%. So uh, it might not be over yet. I mean, now we're back above 10,000 and um, I'm not going to say it's impossible that we go to 100,000. But again, sooner, I mean... The end game is is uh, that it has to collapse. Yeah, I mean, you have a very different focus on this and the time horizon compared yeah. to like someone my age who's just trying to get rich quick speculating. Exactly, on it. that's what all the people, everybody's trying to do. That it's just a, a speculative asset now. So many who look at Bitcoin, they use variations of fundamental arguments. Whereas since it actually has no intrinsic value at all, it might have a use case but no real value. But your entire career is built on pattern recognition and analyzing the underlying psychology or the actual price movements. So your approach actually should work better here. From that perspective, you say that, all right, this correction was only 70%. So therefore, it might just as well set new highs. But just you wait and see until you get the first 81% correction. Well, it wouldn't be the first one. They, I think they had actually had, like had 80, 80 or 90% okay, yeah. in the beginning. Uh, maybe that's true, yeah. Uh, but but since it became a little bit but more mainstream, yeah. they haven't. And now you have a lot more people that bought into it. I mean, before you had sort of hardcore, die, die hardcore fans that, that would never sell. That's why, I mean, you could have a 70, 80% correction and people still didn't, they were just going to stick with it. Now you have a lot of people who are just trading it and have bought it at a lot of higher levels who sooner or later are just going to cash in and, and dump. Whenever somebody says that it should trade at 100,000 or a million dollars per unit, they base that on macroeconomical equations like MV equals PQ, which is just a way of saying uh, how much of the economy should be traded in bitcoins and how quick how, how quickly. Or, for example, if bitcoin is supposed to rival gold, then the price needs to be yeah, 500,000 yeah. or something. But the reason I don't like uh, to trade, I mean, I, I understand people who trade Bitcoin, and I, but I would never do it because um, 
uh, my type of analysis requires that there's a lot, there's a sort of a very large group involved. I heard that uh, sort of like, I think um, a majority of the Bitcoin, sort of 50% or more is held by only a thousand people, which makes it's very easy to sort of manipulate. And I think there's a lot of that going on in the price when it's controlled by such a few hands. And, and uh, so that makes pattern recognition uh, not that great. Uh, Do you know anybody who holds a significant amount of Bitcoin? No. I mean, I have friends who have a small amount, but... Uh, Do you speculate at all in as to why, for example, the... Winklevoss twins owns so much. No, what, what their play is? I think I think they believe in it, and I think uh, I mean it's. I can understand the case for it. Uh, people are fed up with the whole fiat currency system, and they, I think that the the starting point for it was was this sort of libertarian view that uh, the central banks are printing too much money, and we're going to have a the fiat currency doesn't work. So this is better because it's a scarce uh, amount and everything. So, but uh, I, I don't think they've thought it through the whole way. I want to go back to the fourth turning uh, theory. And there's one one thing that I'm wondering if you've thought about. And so we're currently in this crisis period. And the, the reason we are in this crisis period, according to the fourth turning theory, is that you have these generational cycles. And when they come together in a certain uh, mesh, then uh, you get a very fast movement in the in the society that's where things have built up over a long period of time and then they come crashing down and my question here is have you thought about how, how social media plays into this because that book was written before social media and i have a little theory that it could either speed it up which i guess is the first order thinking and then if you think more then maybe it is that maybe it just uh, maybe it doesn't speed it up but it rather creates these like different niches who combat each other and it doesn't speed up but like those different niches kind of take take it out if you understand what i mean you're correct i mean somehow social media is kind of probably going to play into it whether it speeds it up or slows it down i i, I don't know um, it could go either way but uh, I think it's interesting with the fourth turning predictions that you see so much of it sort of, um, you see so many telltale signs now of, of the fourth turning that we're in. One is this uh, whole Me Too movement, uh, I think is uh, very telling because uh, one of the predictions of the fourth turning was that um, as you get into the fourth turning, you're, you're not going to have time for sort of trials and, and, and due process, you know, go to court and everything. And that's what you see in the Me Too movement. You have sort of summary convictions. People are getting, uh, if you're accused, I mean, you're convicted right away. It doesn't matter what the truth is. It's just, uh, uh, it's a very summary trial fashion. And, and that's, that's. I mean, in the fourth turning, you talked about the demand and supply of order in society. During a first turning, you have a very high supply of order and very high demand for order. You know, the 50s and 60s, we came out of the World War II era. Uh, all the great institutions were created, UN and, and all this stuff. Uh, and then the second turning, um, the the supply is still high, but the demand goes down for order. So you had the 60s, you know, liberation movement, women's liberation and, and the sort of the flower power movement. So it's low demand for order, but still a high supply. And then in the third turning, you get low supply and low demand for order. You have the 90s, 80s, 90s with the deregulation and, and the, the freedom age, you know, and the individualism and all this stuff. And in the fourth turning, you get still low supply of order, but you have a high demand for order. That's what we see now with the Me Too movement and everything. People want more order, they want more structure, but we have still a low supply of it. So that's uh, what we're seeing now, I think. Um, 
Yeah, and I think one super interesting aspect of this is how most people, going back to what you were saying before about the importance of reading books, and I think a lot of people, they're, they have a lot of shallow knowledge, but they don't know how, they don't have any strong patterns or models in their head, so everything seems new to them. And then because they do that, they, they think everything is new, and then because of that, they want people, some, some authority to simplify things for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing social media do in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's uh, definitely true. Maybe just because there is so much information available, you tend to focus more on the present, since even if all the information is available to you, there isn't room in your head for looking back more than a few years. I'm constantly surprised how new traders on the market, how little they know or remember of what, what happened just 5, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, that, that's so fascinating because in all other aspects of society, I mean, we, we always build on our, on our knowledge. I mean, science and mathematics and whatever it is, we always retain the knowledge and we build upon it and sort of get further on. But in economics, it doesn't happen that way. We still make the same mistakes over and over again. I mean, fiat currencies have come and gone for many, many times and then... And, and politicians make the same mistakes and, and uh, voters make the same mistake over and over again. So it's it's very fascinating. But I think it's part of human nature. I mean, we're a short-sighted uh, animal, so. I think that one of the best things with the internet and social media is that you can find your own peers very easily. I can find people that are interested in weightlifting and quantum physics, which 15 years ago, it would be pretty hard to, to find that special group. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very small group, so like two people. <laughs> you and another friend. <laughs> and and I, I have something else to add to this, and it's that maybe the generations, the archetypical generations in, in Howe and Strauss theory, that they they find each other and they they bond even more closely now that they actually know exactly what they think. So they, they find each other on, on Facebook or Twitter and, and they just keep patting each other's backs and, and, and cementing the generations even, even harder together. And, and that could create an even more intense fourth turning. Yeah, exactly. No, that's true. Uh, I mean, you, you have this um, the whole idea of, of, of common knowledge. Everybody knows about private knowledge and co uh, public knowledge, but then there's always com common knowledge, which which is different because that's that's when you know something and you know that everybody else also knows about it, which is the case with the whole Me Too movement. I mean, everybody knew that Harvey Weinstein was a serial rapist. I mean, that was public knowledge, but still nothing was done about it. Nothing happened until you have sort of a missionary that comes forward and, 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 and has a good platform for him to speak and everybody when when there was this person says this everybody knows that everybody else knows about it too and then it becomes common knowledge and then it sort of sort of just falls apart everything so uh. i think i think that's really what we're seeing a lot when it comes to politicians or well not politicians i mean politics and uh, how to you know question certain norms of society that's something that's coming up there a lot do you think that history is a good way to predict the future or a good way to learn from the past? Yeah, I mean, with the history is, uh, I mean, it's it's all we have, really. I mean, we can only look at patterns in, in history and try to... to uh make predictions about the future and I mean but like they say I mean history rhyme uh, it doesn't repeat but it rhymes so you have to always be careful not to extrapolate exactly but you definitely can take some cues from history. I think there is an interesting parallel here from David Deutsch the author of Fabric of Reality when he's 
talks about scientific progress, he says that what true science does is not taking like historical examples and extrapolating. What it's doing is it, it looks at at historical examples and finds an explanation. There's a big difference between extrapolation and an explanation, and the same goes for history, I think. And and that's why it doesn't repeat but rhymes. Yeah, exactly. No, that's true. And I think it's uh, it's, it's very important the point he brings up also there that uh, scientific theories not only have to make good predictions and good explanations, but they also have to be hard to vary. That's a very, very important part of scientific theory. I, I can have a scientific theory that you know the god Zeus uh, makes the makes the spring come because uh, yeah, at this every time this year this spring comes and you know it gets warmer and then, then Zeus makes the winter come during the fall. But you can change uh, Zeus for any other th- name; it would still be the same theory. It would still make good predictions because I have this timetable, but it wouldn't be a good uh, scientific theory because you can vary it any way you want. Exactly, and and then if you just uh, change places on Earth to to another hemisphere, yeah. <laughs> and then you can say that well, he's he's sad during the yeah, winter yeah. time or something like that. <laughs> You helped co-found the hedge fund Lynx. Now it manages about six billion US dollars. Could you explain what do they do? Uh, Lynx is a systematic uh, uh, CTA. It's called Commodity Trading Advisor, uh, which uses uh, purely uh, systematic uh, models to make predictions on the markets. So there's no sort of um, discretionary um, intervention from from the managers. Uh, uh, all that is done is is is, uh, is um, construct models that try to make predictions and then. And you follow the models uh, 100%. So how long would you say the lag time from from constructing the models um, until you, let's say, change the models due to changes in the market? It's very long. I mean, uh, we had a rule that uh, you should only change models every s- six months. And I still, I think they still stick to that. So you want to make small incremental changes to the models and, and not be too sort of uh, uh, eager to change because it's it's very easy to 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 change a model just because it's had a bad period, but usually that's the wrong time to change a model because it's going to start to perform again. So you want to be sort of slow moving and then, but still adaptive enough to 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 uh, pick up and changes uh, in sort of big structural changes that come along. The reason I'm asking this, I heard something quite annoying the other day in, in the media. The journalist was critiquing links for not reacting in, in, a, in a sound way to the Volmageddon event, which is completely ridiculous if you know what, what links actually does. And also, uh, I just looked back at, at your history. And uh, since inception, uh, Lynx is up by about 500% and the market is up by about 100%. And yet just one one poor month and a very weird way of interpreting it uh, made the journalist uh, question Lynx's existence. Yeah, and I think that's, this goes back to what you, what you said before about the, the short-sighted nature of humankind. I mean, we... We really have a sort of a recency bias where where everything that's happened the recent month or the recent year sort of has an has a uh, bigger weight than everything else, and that's that's a very bad bias to have if you're in the financial markets uh, because you're going to make very wrong predictions. One of the things they said was that links has claimed that it's the low volatility environment that that's bad for them, but now you get high volatility and it's that's bad as well. I think it's a fair fair point. That they make uh, because uh, I mean CTAs and trend following are supposed to to make money when the volatility goes up. Uh, now in this case, it was um, the stock market volatility that really exploded, and uh, the trend has been so strong in the stock markets. Uh, so so a lot of the models are just positioned for for being long equities. 
but that's I mean if this persists, which which I think it will, I think we're going to have a going going forward we're going to have a more high volatility environment. I think uh, I mean CTAs and and, and funds like like links are going to do do well. But uh, you never know. I mean it's um, that's 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 what I think. Uh, but um, I could be wrong. Are gold futures something that uh, links invest in? Is that a market that's yeah, included? Yeah, they, they trade gold, metals, uh, commodities. Uh, not a huge weight. I mean, financials are, are big, uh, more uh, have a more weight. Uh, uh, fixed income and uh, currencies. And but what kind of time frames do you usually think about or think in terms of? I'm a bit in my, my trading. I'm a bit more short term. I mean, the longest is like a few months uh, holding period. So, uh, but uh, I don't. I don't look at sort of. Uh, I really don't. I, I'm not super short term so I'm not in and out every day but uh, a few weeks to a few months like that how about documentation or self-evaluation do you analyze what you do and like have some process for it yeah that's that's a very important part of what I do I every month I I have a log where I uh, track the PL uh, of my trading every day and the risk uh, I have every day Uh, and at the end of the month I and I also Uh, write down uh, mistakes I've made or things that I've done right and then every month I, I sort of summarize it in, in a summary sheet and then I reset everything so I start from scratch every month and, and begin the process all over and then and, and sometimes I go, go back to the summary page and, and sort of review what uh, what's, what's happened what's gone right and wrong. And do you have an example of a situation where you diverged from your normal rules and guidelines and that turned into a failure? Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. You make uh, bad decisions and you realize afterwards, I mean, you think, well, why did I make that decision? And usually it's some sort of combination between the FOMO, you know, fear of missing out and and emotions get involved. And and, and that's really when you typically make mistakes. And since I'm a discretionary trader, I I don't, uh, I don't just follow rules. I mean, I have I make I interpret uh, the patterns, uh, uh, but then you just try and try and learn from them and then move on. But I mean, I make since I make um, roughly maybe ten trades a day, and I'm right about sixty percent of the time. That that means that, that uh, I have about eighty eighty uh, uh, bad trades a month. <laughs> so I mean, uh, you have to learn to 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 live with uh, bad trades. Hopefully, most of those 80 are still part of your due process and and not due to bad decisions. I think it's a very important distinction to make between bad decisions and decisions with bad outcomes. Yeah, definitely. And then I know that when when I have a bad trade, if if it's because of a bad decision or it's just the numbers playing out. But but when you feel either uncertain about something, like you kind of want to do it, but you're not sure something feels off, or if you really feel that fear of missing out. Do you have someone that you can call, maybe a friend who who is also good at trading? No, I don't really have a network where I where I talk to people about uh, trading every day. I I, uh, I I don't really like that. Um, I, I it goes back to what we talked about before. I, I want to do my own thing and have my own, do my own analysis. I just get uh, distracted when other people get involved with their with their uh, sort of uh, vision or, or their ideas. Uh, so. I, I mean, sometimes I use people as a contrary indicator. You can listen to CNBC a lot, where there's a lot of good people that you can listen to and do the exact opposite and make a lot of money. <laughs> and, and we had lunch the other week. Yeah, so <laughs> Mick is my favorite uh, contrary indicator. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like a, but but you're like a lone maverick. No? Yeah, exactly. I'm a more of a lone maverick. And I, mean, I, I I listen to a lot of opinions, but um, I don't really call out to people and ask what they think. Um, you can't have been happy when I got in on the gold trade. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's you all over to, you now. Have to change your whole. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I really I respect your opinion a lot, Mikael. I want to go back to the the monthly analysis of yours. Is this something that you've been working with like for a really long time, 
or is it something so i mean like it crystallized over a long period of time and you've been refining it so maybe maybe you started out years ago with like and evaluating 20 things and then you realize 20 were too much and then you you kind of found that maybe five things to reflect on were enough yeah no no it started out uh, uh, basically before we started links I, I started building up a sort of a library of patterns and and uh, methods that, that I like to use and uh, when we started links that became the basis for 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 me building models so I, I tried to use those uh, insights and patterns to to build the uh, system systematic models on uh, and then when I when I quit links uh, uh, I've used the same library to to make discretionary decisions, but it, I'm always refining the library and always um, uh, f- trying to find new patterns. A lot of my, uh, I mean, maybe thirty percent of my time is just spent doing new research and finding new patterns and trying to uh, find new stuff that works. So that's that's the most fun part. Is that how you get new trade ideas too? Well, I mean, trade ideas usually come from my existing patterns that I that I know, and, and that's 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 another third of the time that I probably spent just uh, looking at the markets and and trying to analyze and, and seeing how the uh, big picture of the puzzle is is forming up. And, and when I when I get confirmation from many different sources, many different patterns and signals, I I, I enter a trade. But um, does data mining play into this? No, not really. I mean, when when you build models, your your data mining and 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 I do some back testing also on on my patterns that I use now but it's it's uh, fairly I don't go back that many years like I did when I, when we built models models at links it's more like a couple of years and then I do a lot of just visual inspection of the, the pattern I I just go back and look at charts and see how it's done uh, so it's data mining to me it kind of sounds a bit like um, extrapolation whereas identifying patterns a priori and then Backchecking, that sounds more like explanation if, if we use that. That's a much better uh, way to do it because otherwise you will always find the uh, spurious patterns that uh, really don't uh, have any predictive value just because uh, there's so much data. So the patterns are going to uh, pop up that uh, that don't really matter. So it's better to have an idea first and then go back and check check it. Uh, but that being said, I mean, there's a lot of new machine learning uh, algorithms that, that try to deal with this overfitting problem, uh, data mining problem. You have a support vector machines which try to find the, the largest maximum um, uh, margin between your errors and, and your predictors. So, so it's, there's a lot of techniques that to try to get to the heart of this problem with the data mining. How would you advise just a normal person with, let's, with, let's say, like a half a year or a year's worth of, of salary uh, in, in financial assets? How would he best invest on the markets? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard question because um, investing is, is, is a hard thing to, to do. Uh, if you want to make money at it, it's sort of like... Um, Anything you want to do that uh, that you're going to make money at, you have to probably, I mean, put in a long time and put put in a lot of work to to to, to make it happen. You can't just sort of do brain surgery on the side and hope to make uh, some money. But <laughs> it's the same thing with investing. But I mean, I of course I have my. I think everybody should own a bit of gold and stuff like that. But it's 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 hard to give generalized uh, sort of. Uh, so if you're advice. like like let's say forty years old, you have a traditional knowledge worker job. Uh, you're not willing to put in more than maximum one hour a day in managing your financial assets. Should you just buy like an old weather portfolio? We had a bull run now for a very long time and I think uh, that's going to change so it's not going to be that easy and I think the risk parity trade is, is almost over also so I don't think all weather is going to do 
I mean, very well. I mean, we have a situation now where we have extremely overvalued stock markets and we have extremely low interest rates. And the all-weather portfolio, as, as most know, is, is, is basically a long stock strategy with a leveraged bond portfolio. And that's worked really well as long as you have a ne- negative correlation between bonds and, and stocks. But we could see a situation now where we have a positive correlation where stocks go down at the same time as bonds. And then that portfolio is really going to get killed uh, and add inflation to that mix and you get a really, really problem, big problem. Well. So maybe just um, own your house and some gold. Exactly. That's that's my base case idea. Um, if you know, I mean, if you, if you have some ideas about uh, companies that, you know, have some insight into, I mean, friends who have started and you believe in them, you can invest uh, sort of in that stuff. But uh, I wouldn't recommend people jumping into the stock market now. Um, but yeah, owning your own house, owning land, I think is good also. Uh, I mean, if you look back at generations, uh, the only way that uh, sort of uh, generational wealth has been kept has been by property, people owning property, because uh, all else has been sort of squandered. So if you look at the big uh, dynasties, I mean, they're the only the ones that have, uh, have persisted are the ones that have had, had a lot of real estate. So e- even if you don't regularly discuss your own trading with other people, who do you discuss these things with long term views of the world well i mean it's, uh, i talk to friends and then uh, but i mean not everybody's that uh, interested in these kind of things so <laughs> my, my wife definitely she she's pretty tired of me going on about gold and, and everything but uh, <laughs> i guess the same goes for books i mean you're quite an eclectic reader and and the things the books you recommended i, I thought they were tremendous and I've, i've read quite a few of them by now uh, but there are Kind of tough. Yeah, I mean, they're not all easy reads, uh, but um, yeah, I had some new actually. You asked about the books. Uh, I had some new ones that I read. Uh, I don't know. Have you read the um, uh, Have you read Principles? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. So that I, was a really, really good book. I I've, I've both read it, both the last version and, and the new version. But and I also listened to it as an audiobook. It's great as an audiobook. I don't like audiobooks usually. They, I think they are terrible to, to listen to. But Ray Dalio actually reads it himself, mm-hmm. and he, he does a really good job. Yeah. No, it's, it's very fascinating. I mean, Bridgewater, obviously the biggest hedge fund in the world, and they've made the most money for their clients uh, of all hedge funds. So I mean, it pays to listen to him. But I, I was actually going to recommend that book to you since I think his. Uh, his principled way of uh, approaching the world and problems uh, seems like a perfect fit with you. Yeah, I've actually modeled a lot of my trading after Bridgewater. They 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 have this idea of, of putting together uh, multiple um, alpha streams that are uncorrelated, and that's that's the, the way I try to do my trading. I have a lot of portfolios that are uncorrelated and they have different approaches, and then that's the way you get the best sort of risk just return to. So I, I modeled myself uh, so, uh, sort of after Bridgewater a bit, but. Um, Uh, have you have you read the grit? Yeah. One book I have to read that I haven't read yet is uh, Fed Up. Uh, Danielle uh, DiMartino Booth. Yeah, I'm I'm following her on Twitter. I okay. think she I, I think she's great. Yeah. Uh, no, she's I've also really... listened to an interview with her, but I haven't read read w- the book. What's this? She's she's been on the Fed. Uh, I don't know if she's board, a board member. Yeah. Uh, but she's really uh, has some good insights, uh, and uh, she really has a clear view of I mean what's going on there and how how clueless basically central bankers are. I mean we put a lot of faith in these people and then and, and they, they don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's to the point where it's unquestioned, right? Where we're not even thinking about it. It's just unconscious. It's just happening unconsciously because yeah. it's gone on for so long that it's tradition now. Yeah. And no one's really questioning it. Yeah, exactly. 
Are there any other books? Uh, there's one, uh, I don't know if I recommended this last time, but uh, More Money Than God. Did I mention no, that? No, I don't think it's you a, did. It's really, really, it's, it's the best uh, sort of summary of the hedge fund, uh, of history of hedge funds going back to the 60s. It's really, really good. It's just it's just a sort of, um, it just goes through the whole uh, evolution of hedge funds and, and all the big players. And it's really, really interesting. Uh, Is it a bit like Market Wizards, the hedge fund? A bit like it, but it's not divided into chapters where every uh, hedge fund has its own chapter. It's more sort of a narrative of, of, of the whole evolution and go and it's uh, it really writes really really well uh, another one about Soros is actually uh, it's, it's hard to get to find but it's just called Soros by Kaufman and it's the best biography I found about about uh, George Soros. Uh, it describes with detail. I mean, how his, his whole personal life, and he grew up, you know, in the in the, in the World War Two, and and then uh, he had to flee to England, and then his breakup with Jim Rogers, and all this stuff that you want to find out about, but you nobody talks about it because uh, it's hard to get some info. But how come it's hard to find? It's not on Amazon. No, it's not on Amazon. I, 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 but I have it. So I don't know where I got it. But <laughs> it sounds, sounds a bit like margin of safety. Yeah, like exactly. That, it could be, but it's fairly old. I think it was written in the nineties. But uh, another good book is the Warren Buffett's Ground Rules. Uh, have you read that? No. No. Is that a new book? No. It's well, it's a few years old, I think. But it's uh, it's uh, uh, about his earlier years, his, his Buffett uh, partnership uh, years from '56 to '69, where he sort of he uh, he manages more like a hedge fund than his approach with uh, you know these three different types of stocks that he bought: the generals, controls, and workouts, uh, which are three. Uh, different type of uh, approaches that he used and it's really fascinating I'm a bit surprised actually yeah I mean I, I'm not a value guy so I'm, I mean I couldn't uh, it's not really something that, I, that I, I, I could use in my trading but it was fascinating to, to read about him uh, and his, uh, you have to be impressed by his track record obviously but uh, back then he was like I said more, more operating like a hedge fund than in later years I think he's more been a sort of uh, sort of just a puppet or, or yeah, sort a of gold, cheerleader Goldman, uh, cheerleader like for <laughs> Goldman and, and, and the sort of the whole establishment so Maybe you have to be with a couple of hundred billion. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you have to be the establishment if you are the establishment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What did you learn from Soros? Because I know you you read a lot about him. And uh, I also remember from our former interview when you recommended 15 books. And uh, uh, you also mentioned Soros and that you have his table. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you have his book on your nightstand. Yeah, no, that's one of these books that I just go back to and read uh, every once in a while. Part, partly because of motivational uh, reasons. You, when, when you have a rough time, you go through it a rough time and you sort of go back and see how he did. He, because he has this real-time experiment in the alchemy of finance where he talks about his trading in real time. And it's really just informative to see how he how he got through the bad times. But I, the most interesting thing about uh, Source, I think, is his take on why did the whole name Alchemy of Finance, where that comes from. Mm-hmm. And I mean, his his whole thing is that um, analyzing the markets and trading and the finance, it's, it's not science. It's not, it's not a scientific approach because you can never find the truth. It's more like alchemy, which... The difference between alchemy and science is that in alchemy, you're just trying to get operational success. You're just trying to achieve something. You're trying to achieve turning base metals into gold or precious metals. And it's the same in trading. You're not looking for a truth or something. You're just looking for an operational success. And that's why it's more alchemy than than science. That's interesting. I have to read that book. Yeah, so it's a really, really good book. I actually said during the first week on my first job that I'm good at understanding patterns. I'm good at identifying them and, and using them. And then I spent 20 years in the finance business almost burning myself out because I couldn't find the patterns or the truth. I think that's part of why I 
eventually quit. Yeah, exactly. It can be very frustrating, uh, especially like me. When, if you're, you're uh, you, you like looking for truth and you're a truth seeker, and but uh, you have to you have to realize that uh, finance and trading and it's it's more about um, trying to find something that works. And if something is not working, you have to change and you have to adapt. And, and uh, it's like he, he says, he's not looking for rules. He's just looking for changes in the rules of the game. And it's... it's and he has a very historic approach, correct? Yeah, I mean, he, he analyzes it, but he's more a fundamental guy, he macro guy. And I mean, I don't use that, mu- that much, but um, uh, he analyzes the economy and stuff like that. He doesn't use technical analysis that much. But, uh, but, but I, remember, I remember reading something, some quote from him. And uh, one thing that he said was that he studied a lot of history and studied a lot of the main institutions in the world, like the EU, for example. And he knows, like, okay, it was founded this year and this year, and, and this is how this rule came to be, and and this rule was created due to these circumstances, and so now now those circumstances no longer apply, and uh, people don't realize this. So this is knowledge that I w- want to use somehow. Yeah, like that, I mean, that's he, kind of how we approach yeah, this, from my uh, understanding. Yeah, he's very detailed and goes into sort of uh, very sort of uh, arcane details about tax taxes and stuff. And he puts on a trade because uh, there's some new tax law, or he he's going up in the lift in in Gestad and he reads about uh, British guilds and he buys guilds when he jumps off the lift because uh, he read something in the paper. It's, it's sort of, but that's what's so funny about it. It's, it's, it's very sort of a stochastic trial and error approach that he has, but it seems to work. <laughs> like he'll bet on anything. Yeah, his his his, uh, his saying is always uh, invest first and investigate later. So you first make the trade and then you do the investigation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like he says, it's 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 uh, seems to work over time. But uh, yeah, it's very. As as long as you start small, I actually think that that is a good idea. We we often did that at Futuris, but with a very small starter position, it kind of hones your mind. You just open up to information about the investment once you've done it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's true. But uh, but you also have to get rid of the sort of the bias that comes with owning a position, and you have to sort of yeah be able to let it go. Is but he that's he's the best uh, loss to, loss loss taker there is. I mean, he could get rid of a position even after being on TV saying that Dalian is going to go through the roof and the next day he was selling it because he just changed his mind so but i, I think you, what you're saying Mikael, about uh, what you just said <laughs> i think i think you could draw a parallel to war where generals they they see so much action that they get so much feedback that even if they don't start out as very smart people they get so much faster and more serious feedback than other people that they become very smart because they they take action with a lot of serious consequences and have to adapt to that I want to go back to the way that you work, kind of like a lone maverick. Like, do you really work alone? Alone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean like, like that. Why? How can you work alone? <laughs> no, I don't mean it like that. I mean, you you have you have um, the, the opportunity to hire people, but you do you choose to do everything yourself. Yeah, but uh, he's the supreme being. What would you expect? <laughs> No, but I, I really like uh, I like uh, being alone. I think I think a lot better when I'm alone. Uh, so I don't like a lot of distractions, and, and a, lot, a lot of what I do is not really it wouldn't be considered work. I mean, uh, I spend a lot of time just uh, looking at YouTube videos and, and uh, <laughs> researching on the internet. It's like, but it's. Um, uh, we talked about this before. It's, it's like an analogy with training. It's like when when you do workouts. It's it's when you're doing the workout, you're breaking down the muscles, and that's where the, you're doing the damage. But the whole positive thing comes when you're relaxing and just lying, and that's where the muscle starts to build. That's where you're doing the building process. Same thing with intellectual work. I mean, you could uh, do a lot of research and, and uh, look for stuff, but it's really just when you relax that the ideas come to you because uh, that's when you yeah, are open to them. How much time per day or per week would you say is um 
purely market related? It's hard because it's like it's it's all the time, but um, at the same time, I'm not sort of uh, looking at uh, looking at the market all the time. But uh, I always have uh, have the alerts on, so so I know when I, I need to do something. And since I trade the U.S. stocks up till uh, quarter past ten, and then the currencies trade all the time. So, but I mean, I think like I said, maybe thirty percent of my time goes to just analyzing the markets and, and trying to find trades, and thirty percent goes to to finding new patterns and doing research. And then thirty percent goes to to sort of administrative work and then keeping up with the P and L and this stuff, boring stuff like that. But um, so, do you get a lot of your ideas when you're relaxing in the bathtub? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, that's uh, uh, that's when I get the best ideas. Do you think that you've built up an association because you've had like uh, like behavioral conditioning where you just repeat and something over time and you get rewarded for it and then you've had many ideas so your brain starts to believe and have an association that you will be more creative specifically in the bathtub i think it's more like uh, you relax and you sort of uh, put together dots that you weren't that you think were apparent before and it's you have to be sort of a relaxed state to to make the connections uh, right. so it's i think it's more more that but um, So it's kind of like meditation. Yeah, exactly. I guess some of your life has been directed conscious. What chance events have led to where you are? What uh, coincidences? Well, I mean, there are obviously many, uh, many, many. Uh, I mean, the, the biggest one was definitely meeting Jonas and Svante. Uh, without them, I mean, nothing. I wouldn't have uh, created links on my own. I mean, we needed the three personalities to make it work. I mean, I, I was the creative one, the one who had sort of ideas about systematic trading, but. Uh, Then we had Jonas, who was the uh, sort of smart guy, the quant guy who could uh, program and, and build the uh, sort of mathematical basis for it. And then Svante was very good at uh, leadership and, uh, and all that stuff. So we needed all three parts to, to make it work. Uh, so And that's also what maybe one of the biggest challenges of, of, of uh, that you have to stay long term. Because we, I had a lot of offers uh, when we just set up the firm and we were doing trading at Norbank and to, to, go, to go to another firm and for bigger pay and better bonuses and everything. But I, I knew that we had something special that I, if I just stuck stuck to this uh, constellation that we could produce something great over time but it takes um, yeah you have to be sort of resistant to the short-term uh, allures i would consider that resistance a conscious decision yeah but apart from meeting uh, jonas and santa before that uh, are there any other interesting like coincidences in terms of for example what you studied or where you lived Or I don't know, maybe when links hooked up with with Brammer and partners. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's always uh, a lot of coincidences on the way, and uh, you have to be a bit lucky. Uh, we, we were lucky that uh, sort of our initial ideas uh, worked, and uh, we had some new insights that weren't used in the CTA business when we started out, so we could outperform the sort of the. Uh, CTA group, but um, the only thing I can think about is the guy driving up in the Porsche, and then I started getting interested in technical analysis. But <laughs> we already <laughs> talked about that. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, my um, my classmate and main bully—that's exactly how he got me hooked on uh, uh, Stockholm School of Economics. <laughs> he said the, the the kids there they drive Porsches, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even know what a Porsche was, but I could hear in his tone of voice that that's probably something you should have. <laughs> But but so there we have you and Svante and uh, Jonas, and you become sort of like a dream team within finance, and you start this really successful hedge fund. 
But if, if, you, if you just look at the dynamics between the three of you, do you think there are any lessons for other people who want to like create a dream team in finance? Well, I think it's a very important lesson that you have to find people that uh, complement you and, and, and uh, are good at other things that you are. So I, I think we were the perfect uh, mix of, of, uh, of all, all the things that you, you need to, 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 to be successful. And I think neither one of us separately would have done as well as we did the it's a matter of you know one plus one plus one becoming more than three I mean, it's, it's really uh, and i think that's that's good a good lesson for everybody who wants to start a firm or do anything that uh, find find people that are good at things that you're bad at and i think this is really interesting from a business dynamics perspective because it used to be before that different other things were important but now as we're going into the future it's becoming a really really important skill set And the value is shifting towards these kind of soft values, like putting together a team and understanding how to do that. This is becoming more and more important because fewer people can have more leverage with their work using computers and working in small teams. Like you you yourself can manage a lot of money, which is you can be very productive all on your own. But you couldn't have done that 20 years ago, right? No, no, exactly. That's true. But I think that's sort of a ground recipe for for success in anything. You have to, there are three things you need. You need to find sort of a specialized, uh, something that you're really good at and specialize in it and become really good at one thing. And then, like you said, you have to use leverage. If that is, uh, I mean, in the finance, it's obvious you can use leverage by using futures products and stuff like that. But it can also be like just uh, hiring people and building an organization and getting leverage that way. Um, I mean, it's the difference if you're if you're a nurse or if you're developing a, a, a new cancer drug. I mean, the payoff if you develop a cancer drug is going to be way much bigger because that's such a leverage effect than just a nurse can just take care of one person at a time. Uh, and the third thing I think is that you have to stick to your stick to your th- thing and be really gritty and and sort of. Even though you have adverse uh, things happening, you have to just uh, stick to your to your core. In the book Principles, Ray Dalio, he almost naively describes how he bought one computer. And that was like the, the essential tool for his outperformance. And then he says, and then we earned more money and we bought another computer. Do you remember that? Yeah, no, I don't remember that. It's, but, uh... it's, it's kind of funny, but I think it's it, it has an important message in terms of use tools and use more and more advanced tools and use tools to build upon tools and build new tools. Yeah, exactly. No, that's uh, I think that's very true. And I think that's in a more broader sense that goes back to uh, people always say that you have to look at sort of try to find the opposite opinion of uh, something. Uh, I had a friend said, hey, we should really read more about communism because uh, you never know, that might be good. But uh, I think knowledge... If you want to build knowledge, you have to build it on 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 previous knowledge. So you have to keep on building. So you have to set axioms that like, well, I think capitalism is better than communism. So I'm not going to study communism anymore. And you go on and you learn more about uh, uh, that. So I mean, yeah, it's the same thing there. You have to sort of build on knowledge and then, uh, yeah. So you kind of find something that you believe is true and then you build upon that. Yeah, even though, I mean, you always have to sort of question your beliefs and sometimes you have to totally unlearn what you've learned to go forward. There's something about naivete that's pretty uh, pretty uh, amazing also. I mean, I, th- I don't think the Klarna guys would have started if they listened to all their uh, you know teachers who said that uh, you can't do this. So you have to sort of be a bit naive to start to be disruptive in any industry. Uh, What's the worst thing about your life? 
the dog. <laughs> the dog. Yeah, you have a new dog. How, how old is it? No, it's only four months, but it's it's more of a hassle than we thought. Uh, I so think it's, it's good for you to get up in the morning. Yeah, I think uh, it's generally I, I tend to get stuck in front of the computer, so it's good for me to get out every every hour or so to 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 take the dog out for a walk. And it, uh, yeah, not I think all now now I'm getting used to it now, but in the beginning it was quite. Uh, I often tend to get ideas when I get up from the desk and go to the bathroom or take the dog for a walk. So I, I yeah, always definitely. need to have something yeah. to take notes on. Yeah, that's that's true. But otherwise, I, I try to try to to eliminate the bad things. That's my that's my whole philosophy to, to just try to get rid of the bad things, and then the good things will take care of themselves if you just do that. So that that's kind of how you approach your trading too, uh, principally, correct? Yeah, exactly. Whether you want to remove the risks in as many ways as possible. Exactly, and if you do that, the, the returns are going to take care of themselves. So. Could could you give some examples of how you've learned to do this? Because I remember in, in the last interview, you said you you gave a couple of examples, and one example that I vividly remember was that you avoid everything having to do with Bank of Japan. Uh, yeah, well, uh, they have a tendency to, to to do things overnight, which can, <laughs> if you're not awake, then it can be... I, me- I remember sometimes when we did prop trading at Nordbank and then the Bank of Japan had done something overnight and we had lost a lot of money just because they drove the dollar yen, you know, a few big figures. So, yeah, yeah, you have to eliminate all the risk. Uh, you can't eliminate the risk completely because, uh, I mean... You have to take risk to to earn something also, but but how, how do you think about that? Do you have different ways of categorizing the risks? So you're like, okay, now I'm going to focus on minimizing this aspect of risk. Well, I, I just try to one is just keeping the value at risk with the risk in the portfolio at a pretty constant level, so I don't exceed that. So I stay within the sort of uh, uh, what's what's reasonable. Then value at risk is not perfect as we talked about before. But another thing is just trying to make as many uh, multiple bets as possible, so that no one single uh, bet or decision is really that important it's more and more if you if you get the average right and i've made over 10,000 trades now and i've been about correct 60% of the time and if you can do that and keep the losses and the wins and are on the same level you're going to do pretty well what do you wish people in general did more not not for your sake but for their own sake <laughs> what do you think people do too little of they learn too little i mean they, they think people should learn a lot more try to be try to be infinite learners and the learning machines and try to set aside more time to to just reflect and and uh, not uh, get too caught up in in the sort of the day-to-day life with to-do lists and i have a rule that i only spend like a certain amount of minutes every day on my to-do list which is fairly long usually uh, but um, uh, it's very easy to just get get caught up in doing stuff uh, trivial stuff that might seem important now but aren't really important for your long-term goal do you meditate in the traditional sense no, I mean, I, I basically most of my day is just meditation. When I sit in front of the screen, that's sort of my meditation. But if I didn't have that, I would ser- certainly meditate. And I think that's a really good idea. But uh, I'm very serene most of the time. So seems very nice. It's very nice to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I read about this concept the other day, and I can't believe I hadn't heard about it before. But there's a concept called risk homeostasis. Another word for it is risk compensation, I believe. You know, related to the concept of homeostasis, that you have an average baseline of kind of what you're used to doing. And that could be an emotion, it could be a thought pattern, anything. And in this case, it has to do with your risk tolerance. So in this case, it would be a person who, who usually takes a lot of risk. They have this kind of constant level that they're used to taking a lot of risk. But then for some reason, if they don't do that, then they'll want to take more risks fast just to get back into their homeostasis. And one example of this is that people who... like. Well, I can think of one example for you, and that would be if you're usually trading all the time and you're taking a lot of risk, or at least you're dealing with it, and then maybe you go away on a vacation for a week and you don't trade at all. 
Do you engage in extra risky stuff then? No, not. I mean, I think people are generally divided into two groups. Either if you take too little risk or you take too much risk. And I mean, you have there can be problems with both. If you take too much risk, you're going to blow up. Uh, if you take too little risk, you're not going to earn enough. Uh, so, but I don't have any. My my problem is that I I'm too risk averse. I mean, that's been always been my big issue that I need to push myself to take more risk. So I, I'm just happy when I don't have to take risk. Uh, but. Uh, Now I've gotten very used to it, so now it doesn't really bother me. But uh, I do get, uh, I mean, you, you've heard about the expression hangry, when you're hungry and, and, and angry. My wife yeah. gets that a lot. She, I just tell her to go and eat something. But I get wangry, which is work angry. When I don't get to work, when I've been on vacation for a week or so and I get really grumpy, she, my wife just says, go and work now for a few hours. So you get <laughs> back into shape. <laughs> What development in the world are you really excited about? I mean, fourth turning is, is one thing, but um, are there anything else? Technologies, media? trends yeah i mean i think uh, the whole uh, it's a very interesting time to live in with the technology uh, aspect now uh, with the ai and everything and uh, so that's really really interesting to follow i, I do you know tim urban yes. yeah, yeah yeah i heard about his dpu no Uh, he has this uh, theory, which is just a mental construct, but uh, he calls it death progress units, which is the amount of time you have to go forward in time to, or the amount of years you have to go forward in time to really just be die of uh, surprise. So okay. if you go, come from, if George Washington came, uh, if he came from the 1700s to today, he would basically die of surprise because of, of all the technical technological advancement. <laughs> but if the thing is, if you go back 300 years. From there, I mean, if it's 1400, somebody came there to 1700, he wouldn't die of surprise because it would basically be the same. Oh, and you even to, if you came from the Stone Age yeah. and to the 1400s, you wouldn't die. No, but maybe you have to go back even further. But the, the interesting thing is that DPU is always uh, contracting and becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. So the, the question is how farther would we have to go into the future to die of no. surprise? And maybe that's only 50 years or something because it's just such an exponential path that we're on in the technological... Uh, is there anything particular in this development that you are looking forward to or, or hoping for? No, it's just this whole uh, AI stuff. I, I think it's very fascinating. I mean, just because I'm a lot of into machine learning with uh, uh, in finance and trying to predict markets with machine learning, I think it's uh, that machine learning is just a part of AI. So, but it's very fascinating with all the robots uh, stuff. And uh, I don't know if you watched uh, the Falcon Heavy launch with Elon Musk. That was also pretty amazing. I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I like this story about how Google made this software that from scratch with just the rules of how the pieces can move in chess in eight hours defeated all other computers, blew past everything. Yeah, people make a big deal about AlphaGo beating the best Go play player, but they had to program AlphaGo, AlphaGo for many, many years with sort of a lot of input from, from Go players. And then finally they beat the best Go player. But then they they made AlphaZero, which beat AlphaGo just from scratch, not knowing anything about. And that's really interesting with these new deep learning and neural networks that have come along that have totally blown away everybody uh, in terms of, of uh, making predictions. You know, there's a book uh, called Future Shock by a guy called Alvin Toffler. Have you read this book? No. It's a, it's a, it was written in the 1970s, right during the hippie era, sort of. Uh, not hippie, but, you know, the spiritual era mm-hmm. that you were mentioning before also. Mm-hmm. And that book is about the, the term future shock, that the world is moving faster and faster. Just like you were just saying now about dying about surprise. And I think this is something... It, it also goes back to what we were talking about with the fourth turning, where people want to have things simplified for them because they don't have the right models in their head. And I think I think this some this is a really strong trend that we're seeing that people are becoming more and more future shocked because they they don't they don't have the correct patterns in their heads. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, very true. I, I have a fairly. Uh... Uh, unconventional theory uh, in this aspect. I, I'm like, I'm going to be unpopular now again. But <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 
<laughs> I, I have a theory that um, we're going to see a very strong shift in the uh, in the uh, relationship between males and females going forward. Because I mean, we had the women's liberation when they got the 60s and 70s and liberated women in terms of economics and and sort of freedom from just being in the house and they could um, be on the same uh, level as, as men in terms. Of, they're not there yet, but fairly equal. But I think we're going to going forward. When uh, right now women have the sexual power, and I mean they have they decide uh, they have the decision to decide, so they still have an advantage over men. But that's going to change when we uh, move into this whole uh, AI future with robots, and then people are going to men are going to be able to have sex without going out to the bars. <laughs> so that's going to shift the whole the power dynamics between men and women. That's my theory, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a, it's, I think it's going to be about as big as the women's liberation in the 60s and 70s, but for men. That's uh, really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> there are quite uh, dramatic shifts in the relations between the sexes over over the years and this is one thing that uh, Howe and Strauss talks about in in the fourth turning as well uh, they have a, a slightly different view of it all but they didn't know about AI when they wrote yeah, the exactly book no. they predict that just as you had a strong female movement uh, around the second world war and before which then degraded into very strict separation between the sexes in the 50s and the 60s and then you had the liberation and, and today's equal society and then they predict that we're just about going back to a strict separation between the sexes again but you're kind of predicting something quite different it's not going to be all, all bad i mean i think it's a good thing also uh, but it's going to change the dynamics uh, a lot uh, I, i've talked a bit about this to women and i don't think they're aware of this <laughs> <laughs> really uh, do they want to be informed no, no yeah exactly no they, they don't agree and everything but uh, i i have a hard time seeing how this is not gonna happen because uh, i mean if you're a guy and you can basically get the same experience just for a fraction of the cost and you don't have to face the humili- humiliation of rejection and everything uh, why why men wouldn't uh, that's not saying that uh, relationships are going to stop i mean we're still going to get married like just like uh, um, women didn't stop uh, stop marrying men just because they had the economic freedom uh, i mean we still have pair bonding so mathematically i think i've i've read uh, an essay on this that if you just remove 1% of the men from this equation then uh, all the women will fight over the remaining men and give a tremendous amount of, of power to every man. And if the development you're talking about removes quite a few percent of men from the equation, then the remaining men that actually are are willing to take some humiliation and take some risk, they will have like paradise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or maybe 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 it will be the exact opposite that school systems will stop, you know, they will have segregated school systems that teach women how to handle a man so they can beat the machines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The true Turing test. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Then you have true specialization in in uh, the education system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to make a movie or write a book? Well, I, I've, I've tried to. Uh, I've always had a sort of uh, big passion is is to write a novel or a book because I, I love reading so much. So I really wanted to to it was a dream when I was younger to become an author. But every time I tried, I failed. It's like I write one or two pages and <laughs> I can't seem to get past that. So I actually started writing a lot of poetry when I was in my thirties, and that uh, that's uh, that uh, was really fun for for a while. I, I wrote a lot, and that's poetry is a lot easier because it's shorter. You get. You just write a poem and it's it's over and it's uh, so it's a lot easier than writing a whole book. But someday I hope to to write a book. But 
uh, I have actually a small uh, film production company called Four Brothers with my because my two brothers are, are in the movie and the music business. So we, we've done one film together called the Student Fest in, in 2013. Is it available online? Yeah, yeah, you can get it online. Uh, it's based on our our uh, our real experiences during uh, when we sort of crashed uh, student parties back in the days. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting uh, plot for a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we try. We want to make it very re- realistic. But uh, would you say it's suitable to watch uh, as a pre-party? Yeah, it's very good pre-party, pre-party movie. I, I was hoping it's going to sort of get a sort of cult following, like sort of like the Animal House, or something like that. It's sort of frat. It's a, it's a very fratty uh, atmosphere in the movie, but uh, it didn't do too well in the theaters, uh, so I didn't get my investment back, unfortunately. Have you seen the movie Project X? Uh, no. I, I think it's partly based on reality. It's about uh, some high school kids that um, they uh, organize a house party and 1,500 people show up. Um, anyway, <laughs> that, that's also a good pre-party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of poetry? My, my biggest uh, influences were Pablo Neruda, uh, the Chilean poet, and uh, also um, Charles Bukowski. I don't know if you know him, but he's yeah, really, yeah, yeah. really yeah. Cool, cool writer. He has a really cool background story also. Yeah. Working at the post office. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, he just uh, writes about uh, you know women and being in bars and brawls and stuff like that. It's really, but it's uh, I, I really like his stuff. Do you want to um, to show any of your poetry? Could I read it? I actually I, I got it published in, a, in an anthology in the US, uh, but I, I think I had to pay for it to get it in, <laughs> get in there. <laughs> but it was this kind of system where you yeah you, you paid for 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 your poem to get into the uh, to the book. So I, it's actually published in a book now. I have it in my library. Do you ever think you will write a book on business or some of your special ideas for viewing the world or trading? Yeah, that's that's one of my uh, dreams uh, that I would like to do some someday. Uh, that would be really fun. Talking of books, you read uh, Ludwig's book, right? Yeah, Breaking Out of Homeostasis. Uh, oh yeah. Have you have you to discuss that? No, we haven't uh, talked about it. Uh, but uh, did you it's like a really, it? Really, really good book, and I think it's a really important, uh, really important subject. Uh, so uh, I recommend it to everybody. Thank you. That's uh, that's really nice of you. Uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, Did you learn anything new? Yeah, but I didn't know about uh, homeostasis, the, the whole concept uh, really before, so it's uh, really interesting. And uh, yeah, you think think about it all the time, how, how to sort of break out from your sort of, uh, your own homeostasis when you get into it. And, uh, when Ludwig and I started talking about homeostasis the first time, I actually thought it was uh, just a, a weird word that he came up with himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's just time make a word. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think you should look up the the concept of risk homeostasis, though, yeah, because yeah, it really builds good, uh, on. You you've read my book, so you know, and you know how it interacts with psychology yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. And this is related to trading. It's really yeah. interesting when it comes to society, also. That if you give people, if you make society too safe, a lot of people will want to take stupid risks, exactly, just because they want because they're born yeah. with a certain risk tolerance, yeah, and then they can't really express it in ways that are simple to them, yeah, and then they'll take stupid risks just to f- get yeah. back into their like natural state. And that's, that goes back to the whole uh, issue with the central banks and the Volmageddon. Also, that's that's what central banks were trying to do, make people uh, sort of forget about risk. And so people start doing all stupid things like selling selling vol, uh, sort of crazy. And, and yeah, this, uh, there is an analogous concept to risk homeostasis, and that's uh, vice homeostasis. That the sum of, of vices is always constant. So if you oh, yeah. if you stop drinking or stop taking drugs, then you'll start hitting people or something like that. That's humorous, of course. But I think it's interesting that you tend to um, your personality tends to do just as much of everything uh, at all times, uh, unless you r- truly break out of of, uh, of that little box you're inside, and you have to stay outside the box for for quite some time before it becomes your habit. 
and also to redirect that energy or focus into something constructive. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting uh, aspect of the homeostasis. Do you believe that, this is a tough question, but, but I have to ask it. Uh, do you believe that the nation state is still going to be around in 20 years? Uh, yeah, probably in 20 years, maybe not in 100 years. Uh, so, I mean, maybe we'll evolve to something something uh, better or more efficient than the nation state uh, in 100 years. But I don't, I don't think in 20 years, but uh, maybe sooner or later. Yeah. But I mean, if, um, if the blockchain thing really took off with a critical mass, that would probably speed up the process of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have a decentralized system. That's always good. Then we can all uh, go around like James Bond with, with those engraved rings. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> and that's what I, mean, I love about the whole blockchain crypto thing. It's sort of, sort of very interesting technology. So it's uh, fascinating, but uh, not, not as a currency application. But uh, I think in, in many other parts, it can be really useful in contracts and uh, holes. It's really psychologically appealing. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, this whole sort of central bank mania has, has created so much uh, pent-up uh, pressure for, for speculative assets that, that's that gone into cryptocurrencies and created this whole bubble. But uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a, a lot of analogies to, to the dot-com bubble, actually, where you see the speculative mania and you see sort of now there's more Coinbase uh, accounts than Charles Schwab's accounts, for example. And then you see companies changing name to something with blockchain and their stock goes up at 300%. It's exactly the same thing as in the dot-com bubble. So I think uh, it's, it's going to play out sort of like that. Like uh, a lot of dot-coms went bust. I think a lot of the cryptocurrency is going to go to zero, but you're going to maybe something will survive and then we'll have a, I mean, the internet uh, obviously survived. So the blockchain is going to do that too, but in some other form. Do you think we'll see another sort of media kind of like social media yeah, in the next then, maybe 10 or 20 years. That's a prediction of the fourth turning also that uh, in the fourth turnings you don't uh, really create any new uh, technologies or anything. It's more sort of management of the old technologies uh, which uh, so I don't really foresee any new media coming. Uh, I think we're going to build on, on what we have but uh, I don't think we're going to have a sort of any uh, but I could be wrong. I, 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 uh, I'm I notoriously bad at making technology predictions. I, I when, the, uh, when the iPad came out I, I thought it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> now I have 50 iPads. What do you use all those iPads for? My daughter has a couple and we have for the for the house and to, to, to for the sound system and everything. So. Oh yeah, speaking of that, you used to have eight screens that you were working with and now you've uh, gone down to two, correct? Yeah, exactly. How did that happen? One thing is that uh, when you start out with trading, you're really fascinated with the technology and it's it's really cool to have all these screens. And, and it sort of reminds me of when uh, when I start, started earning a little bit of money, I, I, I bought a red Ferrari because I, I saw Tom Selleck drive around with one in 9 MPI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the, uh, that's sort of the same thing here. But then you realize, uh, what do I need this red Ferrari for? I mean, uh, it's just, it's not me, so... Then you you go, you go back to sort of uh, what's true, true to yourself and, and and what's simple and that's sort of an age thing also. The older you get, you just want to simplify stuff. So then you got a yellow Lamborghini. Exactly, that was for me. <laughs> I actually got a yeah, I got a cream colored Ferrari instead. I thought that was my. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the screens, when you had eight screens, do you remember what you had on each screen? Yeah, I mean, I had the sort of different screens for different stuff, but what happened was actually they started breaking down. So, uh, and, I, and I just got sick of replacing them. So, but then I figured out that I was just choosing two, but I just needed to. So I, there was just no sense in. What about now when you only have two? What's on them? Well, I mean, I have one screen for, for the trading application where I execute the trades and I have another one for the analysis and uh, the charts and the risk uh, Excel and, um, and the MATLAB and everything. So I try to divide it up. Uh. 
I only got up to three, but when I had three, I got tired of turning my head all the time. So I, I got down to two and on the one I had like stock market screens and on the other one I did work yeah. in like Excel and Word. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I, I understand people who have a lot of screens that uh, sort of have to watch every tick and then sort of uh, scalp in and out and, but, and do really real-time pattern recognition, but uh, it's not my type of trading. If we look back on your career, do you remember some different challenges from when you made your first $100,000 and then maybe $1 million? Yeah, I mean, uh, that uh, really came when we were running the firm. So I wasn't, uh, it wasn't like um, a really big focus. We were just focusing on on building a good track record and then getting the firm to grow and then managing the money well. So yeah, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't like a milestone. Oh, now I made a million, now I made the two million. It's, it's, it was very continuous and, and we didn't really get to, we kept a lot of money in the firm. So even though we made, uh, because of tax reasons, we couldn't take the money out. So we had to keep it in the firm for five years. Yeah, it was really a lot on paper in the beginning, you know, although the money was in the firm, but I couldn't get access to it. We couldn't take it out. So, but I mean, and also I've, I've never sort of been super materialistic. Um, it's it's nice to, to be able to travel where you want and then and have a nice car and house, but it's not very important for me with uh, materialistic things. So. Do you have a certain skill or competency that you would advise our readers or our listeners to uh, to learn for the future? I mean, uh, generally just uh, obviously programming and computers and uh, learning AI and machine learning is, is good stuff. But I think also sort of, sort of the creative side, if you can focus on that, then there's going to be a lot of demand for more uh, humanistic uh, skills in the future. I think when we, the robots take over most of the manual labor and stuff like that. But I think uh, the most important uh, that thing that you have to learn is just to learn this grit concept where you... We just uh, try to persevere and, and have long-term goals that you try to achieve. And also know that uh, even though we have passion for something, it's it's not going to be all roses all the way. I mean, I have a lot of times when, I, when I'm when i doing what, I, what I'm passionate about, but it's just not, it's just boring stuff. It's just, um, you know, managing data or sort of logging trades or something that's not really, but it's, it's part, uh, I mean, it's part of my passion, but uh, it's, it's boring stuff anyway. And you have to be really just to be gritty and then realize that it's part of your long-term goal. It seems like you agree with my view that the most important thing you can learn is is learn about learning. Yeah, exactly. And, learn, and learn, also learn. as in grits, learn about doing. Yeah, learn about doing and, and, and uh, yeah, just be in, uh, just be, be learning all the time and, uh, and uh, be adaptive and, uh, and also li- listen to your, listen to your uh, inner voice. I mean, it's like Steve Jobs says, uh, you don't, uh, don't let the other people's noise drown your inner voice. And that's a good, quote, I think a lot of people get caught up in what they should do or what other people expect them to do. And uh, I, I hear a lot of people say, but I don't know what my passion is. I don't know what it is. But I think if you don't know what your passion is, then A, maybe one, you haven't done enough trial and error, so you haven't gone out and tried different stuff. I mean, I, I, I tried a lot of stuff before I found my passion. You have to go out and try stuff and really be uh, doing stuff, not just thinking about it. Or B, it could be that you're afraid of failure, which is very common, I think, among people don't uh, follow their passion because they're afraid to look stupid. And it's like sort of like the Elon Musk story I told you before about when he was uh, 10 years old and explaining to his, uh, to, his uh, to, to a girl that uh, he's not afraid of the dark anymore because, um, you know, the dark is just an absence of photons. So it's no reason to be afraid of the dark and that sounds really cute when you hear it from a 10 year old but it's really true about uh, about taking risks in the adult life also I and mean, you're not going to die because you start a company that fails you're not going to starve you're not nothing bad is going to happen to you but you think that, that that's why people are afraid to fail because they think it's, it's going to be lethal but it's not I mean, it's just your ego when people learn about our interviewing you they almost always say ask him what motivates him to keep trading even though he doesn't have to that's not a good question since if you just 
want to quit what you're doing, if you just want to make enough money to be able to quit, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. You have to love the process and not not the outcome. I mean, that's, that's the best way to get good at something, just to love doing what you're doing. I mean, I know when I got my first job at Nord Nordea, uh, I couldn't believe that they were paying me to sit there. I mean, I would have paid to be there. Uh, so I was just amazed. And that, that, that I think that's the, you have to be like that. You have to sort of um, love the process and uh, not think too much of the outcome. So to make a brief recap of the stuff that you recommended, you said said AI, programming, training your creativity, learning how to learn, and also being gritty and persevering. And so that's kind of like a neat combination there, neat combination of things to focus on. Yeah, exactly. That's good to be aware of them. Uh, then I obviously I realized when I said that it's it's hard to to sort of be. I think you have grit or you don't have it. It's it's. I, I heard a study they did on kids actually when uh, when they gave them the option of choice of one cookie now or two cookies in an hour, and the kids that uh, chose uh, so the, the restricted way and said two cookies in an, in an hour, they became more successful when they grew up. So focus on, on long term goals and not not to think too much about the short term and not uh, gratify yourself all the time like you do, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> they've um, they've kept kept doing that uh, marshmallow or, or cookie test uh, over the years, uh, so it's, it's been done. Yeah, yeah, you read about it too. Yeah, yeah, and and they're getting better at it. The kids are getting better. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you you would think yeah. the the opposite would would happen. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll have to uh, look up that research and I'll yeah. include it. It's really, really I, I tried it on my daughter, but. Uh... <laughs> I don't, I don't think she passed. Uh, I'm a bit worried about that. <laughs> have you have you tried it on your wife? Uh, she's not going to pass. She's not. <laughs> you get one necklace now. Exactly. Uh, you must know a bunch of people who have uh, succeeded in different things. If you look at what these people have uh, have been doing, and if you look at the skill set that they've accumul- accumulated. What sort of combination of skills do you see them having built up over the years? I can hear you, Ludwig. I'm right here. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's very different between... uh, Everybody has their own set of skills and it's it's hard to to really uh, make a general sort of statement about uh, what skills are good and what skills are bad. But one thing that I think I know you guys talked about uh, is this concept of of being a giver and not not a taker or a matcher. And uh, yeah, you talked about the difference between those three personality types and you should always just try to be a giver and, and help people and then good things will happen to you. You shouldn't sort of expect uh, anything in return. That was a great way to finish this interview. Thank you so much, Martin, for coming. Yeah, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this interview with Martin. And we've put together, uh, it's about 15 pages a summary of all the best stuff that Martin told us in this interview. And we came up with as many as 27 different really useful lessons. And if you want to get this summary with the 27 lessons from Martin, then you can go to our website, www.futureskillspodcast.com. And you will, it's, you'll find it. It's really easy to find. Or you can just look in this episode description and you'll find a direct link that we provided. And one last thing. If you enjoyed this interview with Martin, please leave a review on iTunes. That will really help us to get the podcast out to other people who otherwise might not find it.